Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientists. This is the program that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. The backlash that I've got makes me very worried about the current state of science. It makes me worried that. There are some people who really feel that it is okay to shut down debate. Why? It seems you can't teach an old dogma new tricks. We'll be busting a few myths this week and showing you how to mentally immunise yourself against misinformation. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. This week, the show has been inspired by an interview that we conducted a few weeks ago. Dr Tim Nutbeam explained to us in the case of rescue efforts from car wrecks, current approaches designed to minimise the movement of patients to avoid exacerbating spinal injuries were potentially doing more harm than good. We went back and looked at uh, all the history, all the fire and rescue manuals, and tried to work out where this paradigm of movement minimisation had evolved from and if it had a historical evidence base. And we could find no evidence of that. There was never any underlying scientific evidence in terms of frequency of injuries or type of injuries or uh, a specific reason why that that paradigm might have been chosen over, say, a head injury or a chest injury or an abdominal injury. And this prompted us to question how often sectors we expect to be underpinned by scientific scrutiny might instead be dogged by dogma. To begin, James Titko spoke with zoologist and TV presenter Lucy Cook about a dogma that's plagued the field of evolutionary biology, dating back to the big man who started it all off, Charles Darwin himself. They met at his old stomping ground, Christ College in Cambridge. So Lucy, thanks so much for joining us. The topic of this week's show is dogma, and dogma, for people who don't know, is a belief authoritatively laid down without being questioned or scrutinised. And I wondered, Lucy, if it was all right if we started um, this discussion about dogma with a bit of a, an activity. I've got some myths, some popular falsities, if you like, about animals that I wonder if you might have a go at debunking for us. And the first one is that you'll often hear people describe someone as being as blind as a bat. Now, are bats really blind? No, they're not blind. No, they, um, in fact, fruit bats can see better than we can. You know, you'd probably quite like to have the eyes of a fruit bat. Very handy if you were looking to lead a sort of crepuscular existence in the 16th century. It was, a, it was an Italian Catholic priest who worked out that they were actually using echolocation. And, and he did some in some sort of barbaric experiments where he actually removed the eyes of bats. <laughs> before letting them loose um, and found that they could still navigate. Ostriches burying their heads in the sand, is that something they actually do? 
No, they don't bury their heads in the sand. And what that might come from is two things. One, they nest on the ground. So they they actually have these communal nests, in fact, ostriches, that one female will look after, or it might even be a male, or one ostrich will look after. And so obviously when they're putting their head down to rearrange the eggs and turn them around, that might look from a distance like they're sticking their head in the sand. Thank you, Lucy. Throughout the course of that exercise, what I've been trying to get at Sometimes we spread falsities and can be susceptible to believing untruths because it's convenient to us, because they make for a good story. Um, But believing something because it's convenient is diametrically opposed to what we think of as science. But you've been showing that in the case of evolutionary biology, scientists have been guilty of perpetuating a theory because it's convenient, because it's what they know. Yes, yeah. It was it was shocking for me to discover this, really. But um, evolutionary biology turns out to be sexist. Darwin himself. Here we are in the college where where Darwin learnt zoology himself at, at Cambridge, and you know he's 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 a hero of mine. You know he's he's the reason I studied evolutionary biology because there would be no evolutionary biology without Charles Darwin. He was an incredibly meticulous scientist, but he was also a man of his time. And that time was the Victorian era, a time when women couldn't vote and, and, and their place was in the home. And so when he came to brand the female of the species, she came out in the shape of a Victorian housewife, passive, coy and submissive by default. And then because Darwin said it, all the scientists that followed in his wake for over 100 years, suffered from a chronic case of confirmation bias. I was amazed that science could be so vulnerable to cultural bias. You sort of think of it as being impervious and, and the scientific process rinsing out that kind of cultural bias. But actually, no. This revelation, I suppose, you had led you to write the book that I'm holding in my hands now. It's quite provocatively titled Bitch, but I think I'm allowed to say that, so I'm going to take that opportunity. Can you give us a flavour of where this typical narrative of the plucky male overcoming the other suitors and the prize being the submissive female where this damsel in distress isn't reflected by the actuality well i mean there are dozens of examples that i could choose probably the one that led to the idea that that darwin was perhaps wrong (laughs) being bust open Langurs, actually, langurs, which are monkeys, you find them in India, beautiful, lithe creatures with these lovely sooty faces. And it was actually it was Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, who's an American anthropologist. And she noticed that the females were anything but coy and chaste. And they were they were actively soliciting sex with with males outside of their group. She was she was really the first scientist rather than to sort of go, oh, hang on, that doesn't fit the paradigm. Um, I'm going to ignore that, which is what everybody previously are done whenever they came across sort of the licentious promiscuity of the lioness for example they just sort of walked away and said oh we're not going to look at that because that's that doesn't that doesn't fit and she found that it was connected with infanticide male uh, languors are infanticidal if if a new male takes over a territory then um, he wants to mate with the females in that territory as as soon as possible but if they're nursing young then they're not available. But if he if he kills the babies then they're going to come into estrus and then he can mate with them. Now as a counter strategy against infanticide the females will have sex with every male in the neighborhood and then the males are less likely to kill the babies of a female that they've recently mated with these are these are not the coy chaste females of of darwin's dreams i want to go back to something you said a bit earlier and 
to lift the veil on how science is susceptible to human fallibility, our confirmation bias. And I wanted to ask how much this dogma that you've been trying to unearth still hangs over evolutionary biology today. Once a dogma's taken hold, how easy is it to reverse the narrative? It's surprisingly hard. I mean, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, who I talked about in the first instance, she first started challenging these stereotypes that were established by Darwin back in the end of the 1970s. That's 50 years ago now, right? So you'd think we would have got over it by now and the sexist stain would have been washed out of evolutionary science. But that is not the case, right? So one of the sort of fundamental principles that underpins this idea that, that males are more variable and, 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 and the dynamic drivers of evolution and females aren't is Bateman's paradigm. I won't go into it all, but it's based on an experiment on fruit flies that took place in the 1940s, right? And that underpins these stereotypes, okay? There's another scientist, Patricia Gowati, has has done a number of experiments in order to question that. And she's replicated the experiment. She's gone back to the original notes, et cetera, et cetera. And she's found that the idea that this is underpins a universal law that, that males are promiscuous and females will be chaste and choosy is is bunkum, right? It's just it's just not true. And yet her papers are considered to be ideologically driven, so they're they're often not taught. Bateman's paradigm is still found in pretty much every textbook you'll find and Patty's papers will probably not be referenced alongside them, right? So, you know, we've still got work to do. Lucy Cook and her new book, Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal, is out now. That science is vulnerable to dogma. It is even more troubling when we consider the very important role it plays in keeping us physically and mentally healthy. Science underpins the practice of modern medicine. Last month, a paper published by a team at UCL demonstrated that the working theory for the cause of depression and what's informed the characteristics that we look for in good antidepressant drugs doesn't stand up to scientific scrutiny. Speaking with James Titko, Joanna Moncrief. One theory about the causes of depression that has been very widely promoted has been the idea that depression is caused by abnormally low serotonin concentrations or activity levels in the brain, which could be corrected by these drugs that were thought to increase levels of serotonin. And it it is a theory that was told to very many patients about what antidepressants were doing and what the, the nature of their symptoms consisted of. What are the problems with this theory that you've found? The problems are that the evidence showing any abnormalities of serotonin in people with depression is weak, inconsistent, and really just basically doesn't stack up. All the different main areas that have tried to, in some way, gauge what's happening in the serotonin system in people with depression and compare it to what's happening in people without depression, there was no convincing evidence from any of those areas of research that there was any link with between serotonin and depression and certainly no evidence that people with depression had abnormally low serotonin levels. So if we take this chemical imbalance theory of depression as as something that's unhelpful, why do you think it's persisted for so many years? Why has it taken, I suppose, till you and, and your team of researchers to start to question this theory? The theory was established in the minds of people by 
very well-funded, very widespread promotional campaigns run by the pharmaceutical industry starting in the 1990s and lasting for most of of a couple of decades. So that's how it became really well established. Why has it persisted is a, is a good question because many leading psychiatrists and researchers have known for some time that actually the evidence for links between serotonin and depression was not convincing or consistent. And yet no one has informed the general public until, until now, until the media coverage of our, of our recently published paper. And I think that is because Many psychiatrists, even though they know that the evidence for serotonin is not strong, really want to believe that the drugs that they prescribe work in a clever and sophisticated way by targeting some underlying biological abnormality. And they don't want to think about their drugs as drugs that change our normal mental states because that is a bit worrying and and would probably make people less likely to take them. There are, of course, a lot of interested parties in this scenario, not least the people suffering from depression, but you've mentioned the drug companies as well. What's it been like to be a scientist going up against the mainstream like this? Have you come under pressure? What's the experience been like personally, if I may? Some of my colleagues and many other psychiatrists that I most most of whom I know by reputation, if I don't know personally, have clearly been outraged that I have raised questions about the action of antidepressants. And also really that I have suggested that depression might not be due to a specific biological abnormality and that it might be time to think about depression in a different way. Is this a story of a victory for science over dogma or do you feel a bit pessimistic about the role of science in reaching this conclusion or uh, or the journey to, to getting here? How, do, how have you felt as a scientist about that process? I mean, I've been making the same points about antidepressants essentially for many years now. Clearly, the surprise that greeted the publication of our paper shows that I hadn't got through to many people because most people were still completely convinced that depression had been convincingly demonstrated to be due to a chemical imbalance. So I'm really pleased that the message has got out to more people and I hope that it will you know, encourage people to to question and to be more sceptical. The backlash that I've got from from colleagues and from other people uh, in the profession and also in the media makes me very worried about the current state of science. It makes me worried that there are some people who really feel that it is okay to shut down debate. It is okay to characterise a perfectly logical, plausible and well-supported opinion as being beyond the pale and something that someone shouldn't be allowed to say. And I think that's I think that's a worrying situation. I really hope that the message does get out to more people because I think it's incredibly important that people are able to make properly informed decisions about the things that they do to their body. And if people don't have information about the sort of drugs that antidepressants are, the fact that they are drugs that change our normal brain chemistry, the fact that that drugs that change brain chemistry may have detrimental long-term effects, 
If people don't have all that information, they are not able to make properly informed decisions about whether or not to take antidepressants. Thought-provoking stuff, isn't it? Joanna Moncrief there. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the Naked Scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, The Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask the Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. It's The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. And this week we are talking about dogma. And so far we've shown that some of the false assumptions on which science-led sectors are based can be deeply rooted and that makes them very difficult to shift. If we continue to look at medicine as an example, it's often quoted that it takes 17 years for research evidence to reach clinical practice, such is the hold of these institutionalised dogmas on the discipline. Now, one man who's very familiar with this is Ian Roberts. He's from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's been looking at the potential benefits of a drug that might cut the risk of bleeding during surgery. Ian, welcome to the programme. What put you on the trail of this in the first place? Well, just to correct what you said, it's not a might. Tranexamic acid does reduce bleeding in surgery. So the the might implies uncertainty, but there isn't any uncertainty. Tranexamic acid is a drug that was invented the year I was born, which is about 60 years ago. It was widely used to reduce bleeding after tooth extraction and heavy menstrual periods. And then surgeons started using it because it reduces surgical bleeding and the need for blood transfusion. And it really, really does work. There are now been over 100,000 patients in randomized trials without any shadow of doubt. Tranexamic acid reduces bleeding in surgery by about 25 percent and reduces the need for blood transfusion by about a third to a quarter. There is a remarkable reluctance of doctors, surgeons, anaesthetists to use it. Usually, physicians are loath to do something because there is a perceived risk that something bad will happen if they depart from established dogma. That's what this programme ultimately is all about, isn't it? So what are people worried about then? If they were to use this, what sounds like the blood clotting equivalent of aspirin, (laughs) it is wonderful for health in all ways, what are they concerned about? Drugs that reduce bleeding sometimes increase the risk of unwanted clotting, causing heart attacks and strokes and things. And so they've got this kind of mechanistic sort of expectation, but it's just not borne out by the large scale randomized trials. It's a sort of belief. It's not completely unreasonable, but trying to shift that belief with evidence, which is, I think, what it's time we did is the hard thing. It sounds to me a bit, Ian, chicken and egg here, where there's this perception of of risk, and so people find it difficult to then do the studies that would prove that there isn't any risk, and because they don't have the evidence, they don't act on it, and it goes round like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, except that we have the evidence. You know, with people have been doing randomised trials of tranexamic acid in surgery for about, I don't know, 50 years, 
And now we've got lots of evidence. There was another big trial published in the New England Medical Journal a couple of months ago, and it was just the same, highly significant reduction in the risk of bleeding, major bleeding, potentially life-threatening bleeding, and no increase in the risk of thromboembolic events. We have a job being rational in a way. Do you think this sort of thinking infests medicine comprehensively, or is it just something about surgery? Medicine is like this sort of huge super tanker that changes course very, very slowly because it's all about habits. Doctors might say they are up to date with the evidence and they think of every individual patient that's in front of them, but actually a lot of it is habits. And, you know, patients like this, I normally manage like this. And so changing habits is quite difficult. With the surgical issue, the opportunity to change habits is that there's a bit of a crisis at the moment. So there's a blood shortage in the NHS. I think it's due to partly, you know, due to COVID and summer holidays and all of that. But blood stocks currently are really low. They're half where, where they should be. And if they get any lower, they'll have to possibly postpone elective surgery. And that's a real disaster for patients. So I hope that surgeons and anaesthetists are going to respond to this crisis and start using tranexamic acid in surgery to reduce unnecessary blood use. It it certainly sounds like you're making a strong point. One has to wonder, though, to to what extent we're, we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot with this sort of mentality, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we're very risk averse because we don't want to do harm. Because if we do harm because we depart from established guidelines, then the authorities come down on us like a ton of bricks. On the other hand, we could potentially be costing lives through inaction because of this sort of pusillanimity. So how do we, how do we break the cycle? And, and what would you say to Joanna, who we just heard from, uh, about you know the fact that she's lobbying, saying serotonin and depression are not linked in the way that we've been taught dogmatically for years? We need a rethink. It's almost like sins of omission and sins of commission. So, you know, patients can die because we don't do something. And that's not weighted as seriously as if patients died because we did something. I don't know if that's the way humans are hardwired. All all I can think of to do is to keep on trying to present the evidence in different ways, emotionally appealing ways. I've learned over the years that humans aren't really rational. We're sort of a fizzing ball of emotion and actually so you've got to tap into people's emotions if you want to get practice change Mm. i mean taking a, a contemporary example just to finish the covid vaccines for example which broke the mold in terms of how they got invented how quickly they got through trials and things and the technology they were founded upon people have been working on those mrna technologies for decades in in some respects and no one had got close to making a vaccine, which now Pfizer and Moderna are fighting over who owns what because they're regarded as the biggest breakthrough in infectious diseases and cancer in the last two decades. I think that's a a sort of example of the point that I'm trying to make. In in general, the, the NHS seems like a very slowly moving super tanker, but during the COVID crisis, it just got suddenly very nimble and started changing changing direction very quickly. I got redeployed back to the intensive care unit at, at the Royal London Hospital, and I was just amazed how quickly they could change things. When there's a crisis, people can respond really 
rapidly. So to some extent, I think you've, in order to get change, you've, you've got to, the, the thing you're trying to do, the, trying to implement, has to be the solution to some crisis. Yeah, I'd rather not have a COVID crisis every day of the week, though. But no, I would I'm... like to see a faster pace of change. Ian, thanks very much for, for joining us to talk about the, the dogma in medical practice and changing medical practice. That's Ian Roberts. He's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Now, we've heard about the damage that dogmas can do to how science is conducted and implemented. So how can we deal with this? Well, the best way is to nip it in the bud early. Claudia Schneider works at the University of Cambridge's Social Decision Making Lab. She's interested in how best to communicate science to the public. This, it's argued, can help people to recognise dogma and misinformation before it gets embedded in our thinking and can retard progress. So, Claudia, what's your perception of how people judge science or or what's their perception of of science and how it's practised at the moment? So, I think... Science has definitely come to the sort of into the spotlight in the last recent years during the pandemic. We've seen a lot of science in the press briefings, you know, graphs and data being shown. And, and that's good because it shows that scientific insights are used to help make decisions. But I think having science in that spotlight in the media might have also contributed to a public feeling or almost expectation that science can provide us with answers, that it can tell us what to do. We've heard this mantra of follow the science, and it's and it's really tricky because science comes with a lot of uncertainties um, in the data we use and modeling the statistics and the insights that we have and what we know constantly changes. So I think it's very important also for the public to know what science can do and what it cannot do and what it can't tell us. I mean, personally, as someone who is involved in, in science radio programs and therefore the communication of science, one of the things I think is, is a, a big challenge is that life... And the way that we tend to operate as, as human societies, it's very guideline and law driven, isn't it? We tend to make people think or plan in black and white. And science is completely not like that in the sense that science is all about hypotheses and narrowing the, the, the gap in our understanding. But nothing's certain. Nothing's a fact. Although I know notwithstanding what Ian said about tranexamic acid just now, but it, it, my view is that people find it hard to understand what scientists are talking about when they talk about uncertainty. That's the the difficulty. Absolutely. Communicating in a way that is clear and helps to inform the public, not trying to persuade them to believe a certain thing, that is really the key here. And, 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 and that's actually one of the sort of good evidence communication principles that we've put together at the Winton Centre to try to inform, not persuade. That goes together with when we communicate, offering balance. So talking about the harms and the benefits to help people understand. Disclosing uncertainties. So saying, what is it that we don't know that also acknowledges that what we know will change over time? Stating the evidence quality. So telling people, what is that information that I'm giving you? What is that based on? What is that evidence? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? And helping to preempt misunderstanding. So I think if we adopt these communication strategies, um, be it you know in the media, in our personal life or in government, that might be able to help people to understand the scientific process better and to spot potential misinformation. I first came across those those five sort of guiding principles that you just summarised there during the COVID pandemic. And I was, A, very impressed by them because they nailed it. But B, I was left thinking, well, why did no one say this to us before? I think, and, and, and these have also been voices raised in the literature and in the field, is that 
there's this fear that if we tell people all the things that we don't know and all the uncertainties, maybe that will undermine public trust. They're like, well, what do these scientists even know? And that's a relevant question and a, and a valid one. And we've actually, um, in some of our studies, empirically researched this. And in studies where we compared the more balanced evidence communication with more one-sided persuasive um, approaches, we've seen that it does not seem to undermine trust. And people actually appreciate it being presented openly and honestly with the evidence. And they were more, 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 more willing to listen then. So there was a dogma among scientists and science communicators that the public wouldn't welcome risk and a perception or communication of risk, and you've broken that dogma down by saying actually they do. Generally, you know, as humans from psychology research, we know that we do like certainty, and uncertainty and ambiguity is hard to deal with. But it is important to not let that stop us from communicating it, because telling a simple story and a neat narrative that overjudges the claims and presents things with unwarranted certainty, that can come back to haunt us. If things change, it can erode credibility in the communicator, it can erode trust. And on the other hand, if we really treat people as able decision makers, able to handle uncertainty, then we allow them to also get more comfortable with the uncertainty down the line and be able to spot when someone approaches us telling us this is what you should do. And then they might ask, hang on a minute, what's the evidence base? And that's good, because that way they can participate in the scientific discourse. What would be your advice then to people who want to defend themselves I use the phrase mentally immunise themselves against dogma or falling for sort of dogmatic communication. How should people make sure that they're, they're better prepared not to, to just absorb a fact and regurgitate it? What mm-hmm. sorts of questions should people be asking when, when they're confronted by something that someone says is a fact? Yeah, yeah. I think here it might be helpful to come back to the five principles, which are relevant both on the side of the communicators. So we think, if I communicate something, have I made sure that I disclose what the evidence is, that I also talk about what I don't know? But then also at the receiving end, that when we read something on social media, when someone tells us something, that we really ask these questions, right? Like, like, is this more persuasive? Or do they offer a balance? Do they talk about the pros and the cons? Are they trying to inform me? Um, are they talking about the possible uncertainties or where the evidence came from? And that then allows people to to ask questions and to maybe maybe judge the quality of that particular information, that particular communication that someone is trying them, um, trying hard for them to believe. Claudia, thank you very much indeed for putting it so clearly. Thanks for having we, me. We would expect for someone who's a professional <laughs> in this kind of thing. Claudia Schneider, uh, who's from the Winton Centre at the University of Cambridge. So science is a paradox. It satisfies humans' natural curiosity, but at the same time it demands we must interrogate our core beliefs. People have a natural attraction to novelty, but good science requires a willingness to stick with one problem and break it down into its component parts. That's where we leave it for this week, but do be sure to join us at the same time next week when we're going to be hosting one of our special question and answer shows. With us are going to be a team of specialists from across the scientific spectrum. There'll be space scientists, medical experts, climate scientists and technologists and that means it's your chance to get involved. So please send us your science questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Don't hang around please. Remember, time waits for no man. Unless he's moving very fast of course. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.